Hello, and welcome once again to another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician, triathlon coach, and multiple Ironman finisher coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. If you're anything like me, you were glued to the TV over much of the last three weeks, watching the spectacle that was a highly entertaining Tour de France. Sure, there were the constant reminders of the ongoing pandemic, what with all of the few allowed spectators wearing masks, the riders themselves donning masks seconds after finishing the day's stage, and even the race director, Christian Prudhomme, having to leave the race for some time after himself testing positive for the virus. But all in all, it was just really nice to see a grand tour manage to get pulled off like that, and without a single athlete testing positive for the virus, let alone anything else. Now, I could dedicate a whole episode to discussing the magnificent exploits of Tadish P- I can't even say his name, Tadi Pugacha, or wistfully relishing the resurgence of Richie Port. But I think that I'd rather focus on the fact that this happened at all. In a country that did as much as it could to contain the outbreak of COVID-19 when it hit, and now, in the face of a resurgence, is struggling with how best to combat disease again, in the face of shutdown fatigue. I've seen some encouraging signs of late that things may be getting better, and that despite our worst efforts here in the United States, we may actually be looking at a 2021 with actual races on the calendar. Several vaccines are in late phase three trials, and while none of these is likely to be the whole answer or a panacea, we have seen how successfully masks and social distancing work, and if we can just get a vaccine in combination with these things, then we'll be so much closer to the end of all of this. Of course, it's going to require somewhat of a tectonic shift in social attitudes for both of these things to gain traction and to actually happen, but I can dream. Most importantly, I wonder if the virus itself has changed. In my own practice of emergency medicine, I have not been seeing the kind of illness and death that I was seeing early in the spring, despite the fact that case numbers are very much on the rise again, thanks mostly to schools opening up. I'm hopeful that, like many other viruses, COVID-19 may have taken the evolutionary path of sacrificing disease severity in favor of higher infectivity, resulting in more cases, but less illness and death. Time will tell. For now, I'm just filling out all of my deferral registrations in the hopes that 2021 will be a darn sight better than 2020 was. On the show today, Kim Suthiwan is a longtime triathlete, a coach, and an ambassador for the Ironman and USA Triathlon Foundations. She and I had a rather unfortunate crossing of paths. You don't want to run into me when I'm working, after all. Not too long ago, but it resulted in the conversation that I am happy to share with you later on in today's show. But before that, I have a medical question to answer, and like my introductory monologue, it too is focused on COVID-19. As we look forward to the possibility of racing again in 2021, there are many, many athletes who have contracted this virus and have who since have fortunately recovered. Most of them are symptom-free. Some continue to have prolonged after-effects, and still others may be affected in ways that they don't appreciate. For all of them, an as-yet-uncertain question must be answered, and that is, is it safe to return to training and racing? Well, I took a look at what evidence there is out there on this subject, and I'll give you what I found, and that's coming up right now. COVID-19 will forever be the defining way that we remember the year 2020. 
Fortunately for the vast majority of us, this is going to mean reflecting on lockdowns, social distancing, learning about different kinds of masks, and the social dynamics involved when politics and pandemics get mixed up. For an unfortunate minority, though, 2020 is going to be remembered as the year that one or more loved ones were lost to the disease, while to still others, they will reflect on how they got the illness, but fortunately survived. For the ones who recover from COVID-19 infection, most are going to be symptom-free after a few weeks, but some are going to continue to have symptoms for months sometimes, even a year, and some have still not recovered. Among the group who have seemingly recovered, there is a group within that may have a silent complication, one that is insidious and lies in wait, and that in the right conditions can cause death long after the initial illness has receded. This complication is myocarditis, and while the magnitude of this problem remains very much unclear, it is well understood that it is very real and poses particular risks to young and otherwise healthy athletes. Myocarditis is, quite simply put, inflammation of the heart. It can be caused by a host of different processes, but one of the common causes in otherwise healthy people is viral infection, like COVID. Now, Previous to this year, the most common viruses that caused myocarditis were things like adenovirus, or even rhinovirus or other coronaviruses. Now, in many cases, myocarditis doesn't cause much in the way of symptoms, but as the heart heals, there can be changes to the architecture of the organ that set it up for consequences that can later on be fatal. In fact, myocarditis is thought to account for up to 8% of sudden cardiac deaths in athletes. And that dwarfs the number that are attributed to swimming-induced pulmonary edema, a cause that gets a lot more attention and concern, especially from triathletes. Myocarditis causes problems principally because when the inflammation happens, and especially when it heals, it damages the heart in a way that makes it prone to arrhythmias. And these tend to come on when the person is exercising or otherwise exerting themselves, and if treatment is not rendered quickly, the patient may not survive. Now, COVID-19 has proven itself to be a wily and quite nefarious adversary. The virus is highly, con- is highly contagious and infectious and causes widespread disease in many organ systems, including the lungs, the clotting system, the kidneys, and the brain. The heart, too, is affected in many patients, with signs of cardiac involvement boding very poorly for outcomes. In patients who have no known cardiac disease who were infected with COVID, when blood tests show involvement of the heart, the death rate went from less than 10% to almost 40%. That is to say, for a person who gets infected with COVID, if they have no known underlying cardiac disease, when a blood test indicated damage to the heart from the virus itself, death rates were increased by four times. But even in those who go on to survive The effects on the heart can be very important, especially if blood tests suggest damage at the time of hospitalization. In the eight months since COVID has become a significant issue in Europe and North America, cardiologists have tried to get a handle on the magnitude of this problem, as well as to formulate guidelines for how best to advise patients on when they are safe to return to exercise and what, if any, screening they should undergo beforehand. Now, it likely isn't too surprising that there's a lot of hand-waving going on in this regard, as there just is so much that we don't know, and much that is really being speculated upon. One author, in their guidelines, even invoked the legend of Icarus in presenting what uh, they supported. 
Now, if you aren't too familiar with the story, Icarus isn't just the title of a documentary about doping and sport. It's also a tale from Greek mythology. In it, Icarus is given the gift of wings made from wax by his father. And he's warned at the time that when using them, he shouldn't fly too low, lest he plunge into the ocean, nor too high, lest he get too close to the sun. Well, ebullient with his newfound ability to fly, Icarus foolishly soars as high as he can, only to get perilously close to the sun, where his wings melt, and he then falls helpless into the ocean and drowns. The cardiologists take this story as a warning of how we should not be too cavalier with our post-COVID patients, lest they themselves soar too high and face the lethal consequences. On the other hand, they posit, we don't necessarily want to keep them all too close to the ground, unable to use the gift of their wings now that they've recovered from the illness. I tell you this story merely as a way of getting you to understand that we in the medical community truly have no idea how best to manage this. The number of patients affected with COVID myocarditis is completely unknown, but case reports abound, and in many of those cases, the diagnosis was only made on autopsy. As a result, given the enormous potential downsides, guidelines for return to exercise have tended to be very, very conservative. For example, the Icarus quoting cardiologists from Boston would have every single patient who recovers from COVID, no matter how mild the illness, undergo some kind of screening, with the vast majority getting an echocardiogram. Now, given that over a million Americans have had this disease, you can imagine that this might not really be tenable. Well, I came across another guideline from cardiologists in the Netherlands, and while this one too was still pretty conservative, it struck me as striking more of an equitable balance between what seems realistic and what's actually possible. These doctors separated patients first into those who'd been symptomatic with COVID and those who had not had any symptoms at all. For the asymptomatic infections, this particular guideline recommends no exercise whatsoever for at least 10 days from the time the diagnosis is made, and preferably 14 days, and then a gradual return to exercise, but without any screening beforehand. If any symptoms develop during that gradual return, such as shortness of breath or chest pain, then additional screening is recommended, likely by a cardiologist, but a PCP would be okay. For patients who had a COVID infection that had symptoms, they are further subdivided into those who required hospitalization and those who did not. For patients who were able to stay at home, so they had symptoms but they did not require hospitalization, no exercise at all should be done while symptoms persist, nor for 10 days afterwards. This usually translates into about a month. Then, a pre-screening is recommended for all with an electrocardiogram or an ECG, and evaluation by their family doctor. Based on that assessment, additional tests may be needed, but in most cases, nothing more is going to be needed, and a gradual return to exercise can begin. For patients who are hospitalized, they require a more extensive screening, including an echocardiogram, and in some cases, they may be restricted from exercising for as much as six months. There's a lot of variability within this group, those who had had symptoms and ended up being hospitalized, and the variability depends on how severe their illness was and whether or not there were biochemical signs of heart involvement during that period of hospitalization. And all of this is to say that, once again, COVID-19 infection is no joke. I've said it before, and I'll continue to say it. This is a nasty disease, and everyone should do whatever they can to avoid getting it. But if you've already had it, These guidelines are sobering, and I think a pretty good warning that should be taken with the intended seriousness that they were developed.
Do you have a question for me to consider answering on the podcast? Well, email it to me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. Kim Suthiwan grew up playing sports in school because they were fun, but often she spent time warming up the bench. She got into running not too long after moving to Denver in 2001, and after completing her first marathon, she realized that slow-twitch muscle events were really her jam. She got started in triathlon through the team and training program in 2010 after completing several marathons with them and coaching their marathon teams. And the Kool-Aid never tasted so good, she says. After a few years of training and racing, she was all in with Swim, Bike, Run, finishing her first 140.6 distance race in 2012 at Ironman Canada in Penticton. And she made a natural transition to coaching triathletes shortly thereafter. In addition to numerous triathlon finishes at varying distances, she has four Ironman finishes, including the Ironman World Championships in 2015. Her passion, dedication, and love of the sport led her to serve on the Ironman Foundation Ambassador Triathlon team in 2013, 14, 17, and 18, and now she's on the USA Triathlon Foundation Ambassador team. Kim is a firm believer in giving back to the sport that has given her so much, both personally and professionally. She coaches with Mile High Multisport here in Denver and races for Palmaris Racing and the USA Triathlon Foundation. If she's not racing, you'll often find her out supporting her friends out on the race course and always wherever she is with a big smile. Kim, thank you so much for joining me on the TriDoc podcast today. Hey, thank you for having me. Uh, I think before uh, we get too far into your very impressive resume, we should probably fess up and let everybody know <laughs> how it was that uh, we actually got to meet and get you onto this podcast in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I'm just curious, like, did you just see my name on the board and you're like, hey, I'm going to go check this case out. <laughs> <laughs> what happened was, uh, so, all right, well, why don't you tell the story and I'll, I'll say, uh, I'll, I'll put in my piece. So um, I was on a three-day, I guess, self-supported bikepacking trip from Leadville back to Denver. And I noticed I w- had this little shadow out of the corner of my eye. And of course, Dr. Google being as dangerous as it is. Um, everything led to retinal detachment. And so when I returned to Denver on that Sunday, I gave a call to the telenurse line at the at Denver Health, and they said to get my patootie at to, <laughs> into the ER immediately. And so that's how I ended up in the hospital and was diagnosed with retinal detachment in my left eye. And so I happened to be working at that time, and my resident came to me and started presenting a case of a cyclist who was riding from Leadville to Denver who had this vision problem. And very quickly in the story, two things uh, made me stop her. The first was uh, she rode from Leadville to Denver. Well, I need to go talk to her. <laughs> and then the second was uh, she has a retinal detachment. We need to call ophthalmology. Just based on the story, it was pretty obvious. So I went in and introduced myself, and uh, Cam and I had a brief chat, uh, although uh, I kept it brief at that time because uh, I knew she had more pressing matters to deal with. Uh, plus, there was a, an ophthalmologist peering into her eye uh, at that moment, and she probably didn't have a lot that she wanted to relate to me about her bike trip. <laughs> However, 
uh, as uh, fate would have it, I was on a bike ride with Bill Plock, who has recently been on the podcast as the owner of 303 Endurance. And he related the story to me of Kim and said that she would make a great guest on this podcast. And when he mentioned that she had just had a retinal detachment, I put two and two together. And here we are. Here we are. Talking. Yes. So, Cam, I'm really excited to have you here. I'm not so excited about what happened to you, um, but, um, well, why don't you tell me what you told, or why don't you tell the listeners what you told me just before we came on, that uh, how things are going with your eye? So, um, recovery has come along. I actually had my, I think, third post-op uh, follow-up appointment this morning, and they said everything is healing extremely well. Um, the only thing that I'm really experiencing is they had to inject a, an air bubble into my eyeballs. So I see kind of this black bubble bouncing around towards the lower part of my visual field. Uh, and it is still a little bit blurry. So definitely I don't feel safe going out and riding and I still have yet to been cleared to do any kind of intense like workouts or efforts at this point. Right. And I uh, am not an ophthalmologist, nor do I play one on TV. My understanding is that the air bubble is injected there as a means of increasing pressure in the eye and to keep the uh, uh, repair of the retina tacked down so that it heals. And then it just absorbs over time and eventually uh, is just gone uh, and will not be a bother. Um, Cam, Tell me about your journey to triathlon. It, it seems in some ways very similar to uh, what a lot of other triathletes go through, but in many other ways, it's quite unique. Well, I mean, long story short, I got bored with running. So I got into endurance sports through running and found that I did, ex you know, responded well to long distances I uh, got bored with running, so I thought I'd give triathlon a try. Uh, and it was within the team and training program that I had a couple of the tri coaches that said, hey, Kim, you need to come over to the dark side. It's more fun here. And I'd never swam laps. Um, my cycling, I guess, experience up to that extent was riding my bike to and from class in college. And so there was a lot that I had to learn, but I had the running experience behind me. And so I naturally fell into transitioning, <laughs> for lack of mm -hmm. a better term, into triathlon. And so that's how I ended up in, in that sport. And you've had great success, uh, you know, several age group uh, finishes uh, in local races here. You've uh, done all those uh, Ironmans, of course, made it to Hawaii uh, through your efforts with team and training, which is uh, quite laudable. Uh, what are some of the highlights that you sort of remember and think of uh, fondly as a means of keeping your motivation, uh, especially during a year like this where there's no races going? Um, you know, I think it's just... The, the need and the desire to explore. So even when I was training for the long distance races, I've, I was always trying to find different routes, different routes that I'd never done before that other people had either talked about or um, things that I'd seen online. And I remember specifically when I was training for Ironman Lake Tahoe, given that there was so much climbing um, on that bike course, I was doing rides from Boulder up to Estes Park, up on the peak to peak highway. I mean, definitely in areas that you just don't normally see uh, triathletes riding around and especially on a TT bike. And I think from there, that's, you know, this year being a very abnormal year with no racing, I've spent most of my summer just riding up in the mountains and just exploring different climbs and different roads. Um, 
one of my friends, we found this website that actually listed out like the, the highest mountain paved mountain passes in Colorado. And we started ticking off one by one. So this year we tackled independence pass and trail Ridge road and, you know, a couple others. And we've just had an amazing time, even though there hasn't been any racing. And, at what point did you decide that uh, you wanted to share this passion for the sport as a coach? Um, I've always been kind of that person. Like people have always wondering like, oh, you know, what are you, what are you up to? And in doing so, I want to recruit as many folks into what I'm doing uh, whenever I can. So that's, it's always been something that's been natural to me. And I do I always feel like there's always room to share more love of whatever it is that I'm doing. Tell me about your experience with the um, Ironman Foundation and now with uh, the USAT Foundation. Um, so the Ironman Foundation, I kind of stumbled upon them in their early years back in 2013 when they were forming the ambassador team that those of us that have been part of that team, we call it the Kokua team because Kokua is a Hawaiian word that means to give back without expecting anything in return. And that's, a, a, I guess, a word that um, is on a, all of our racing kits. And so that's kind of been our motto. And from there, um, Dave Deshane was the uh, executive director of the Ironman Foundation at the time. And he has since left and uh, taken lead as the executive director of the USA Triathlon Foundation. So that's how I've kind of made that transition over from Ironman to USAT. Um, but I found that what the work that they were doing resonated a lot with my own personal values that, you know, what we're doing in the sport is a lot bigger than ourselves. And if it can be used as a vehicle to give back to others, then that's just something that I want to keep continue to do. And I've seen that uh, you've been pretty involved with uh, the USAT has uh, a new um, initiative that they have going. I, I've seen on your Instagram account. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on what it is, but it's a, it, it revolves around, I think, participation or... Yeah, or, it's called um, The Power Within. That's it. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And uh, so tell me a little bit about that. So through that, we just want to promote the sport to all folks, whether, you know, and, and really... A lot of it has to do with inclusion and diversity and really inspiring those that maybe at some point in their lives never thought they could do something like triathlon and to find the power within them to be able to do what they thought maybe at one point they thought was impossible. Yeah, I think it's a great message and certainly one that resonates with me and uh, with a lot of people I know who have come to the sport for exactly that, to, to prove that they can do something. And I think it's a great message and uh, certainly a great initiative. I, I have to say, uh, USAT has done a great job this year with a couple of uh, their initiatives, uh, one being uh, Power Within, but the other one being the one that came up more recently uh, with their initiative to increase diversity in the sport. Uh, I have been uh, pretty uh, optimistic about what I've seen as their initial uh, kind of, you know, uh, movement and their plan. So I'm hopeful and we'll see how it plays out, of course, because uh, proof's always in the pudding. But um, thus far, at least, uh, they've definitely put out what to me looks like uh, a pretty solid start about trying to improve diversity in uh, what has traditionally been a really white sport. Um, do you here in Denver with uh, your club, My High 
do you guys have uh, a, a means or a, a way to try and increase diversity at that local level? So Mile High Multisport is actually a coaching company. And, um, you know, of course, for the longest time, people, I don't know if people had this uh, perception that Mile High Multisport was only for the elite athletes, because we did have a lot of athletes on the roster that are high performing, usually on the podium, Kona qualifiers, that sort of thing. And when I was brought on as an assistant coach with the staff, they brought me on with my experience coaching team and training, which, you know, traditionally team and training usually attracts the couch people, you know, the kind of couch to 5k, the couch to you know, sprint or Olympic distance triathlons. And so with the experience that I had working with folks that are brand new, not only to multi-sport, but just to endurance sports um, altogether, I think that lends itself to adding some diversity to our our coaching roster. Um, But, you know, through that, USA Triathlon has done an amazing job with offering all sorts of grants to organizations that do try to increase diversity within the sport, um, you know, making opportunities happen for those that um, may be at-risk youth or underserved communities. Yeah, um, I actually had also thought that uh, my sport was more of a club. I didn't realize it was a coaching uh, group. So uh, that's great news to hear that. Uh, and, and you've been with them now for how long? Oh, gosh, I I haven't been counting. Um, Probably, I know it's been at least five years. um, Mm -hmm. But I have, you know, in the past, an active member of the Rocky Mountain Triathlon Club. So that is more of a club club. Yeah. And we're more of, I don't know what to call it. But we're we're all working professionals that are, you know, 20 plus years of age, all the way up to, I think our oldest member is in, in the 70s. And um, and then everything in between. And we've always been extremely inclusive and regardless of people's backgrounds and abilities. Um, but, you know, definitely, like you said, the sport of triathlon is very whitewashed. And a lot of it is because of the price point to entry for the sport. It is not a cheap sport, um, but there are definitely creative ways that we can do, you know, make the sport a little more accessible to those that might not be able to to participate in the past. Yeah, no doubt. Now, you're obviously a very busy woman. Um, I read in your uh, background that I believe you have a, an undergraduate degree in, is it microbiology? Is that correct? Yes, yes. So what do you do with your day job? Or is this now <laughs> transitioned to become your day job, all this triathlon? <laughs> so I was pre-med in college, which is where the microbiology degree comes from. And later, I did end up getting my MBA. My day job is actually as a regulatory analyst as at a uh, oil and gas company here in Denver. So my day-to-day is uh, making sure that we have all the permits and follow-up documentation that's needed in order to drill oil wells in Texas. <laughs> all right. So you you obviously drifted far off the path of microbiology, but uh, you are well positioned to answer a question that a lot of people ask me as a physician, and I'm sure you probably get a lot as well. Um, what are some of the uh, tips and pointers that you have for the busy professional who wants to get into triathlon and feels like, you know what, that's probably going to be too demanding on my time? Um, a lot of it has to do with how bad do you want it? Is this something that you want to make 
part of your life? Is this a lifestyle change or is this a bucket list item? So then setting up those realistic expectations. If you are a bucket list item type person, are you willing to, I guess, prioritize working out for a temporary period of time? So depending on what distance race that you want to train for, um, if you're only, you know, able to commit, say, five hours of training a week, then setting realistic goals for that. So you might not want to think about doing an Ironman and maybe scaling it back to, say, a sprint or Olympic distance race. Um, because you don't, not everybody has to be an Ironman. And that's something that when I have potential athletes that reach out wanting to, to get coaching, they kind of ha- feel this underlying pressure from the triathlon community as a whole that everybody has to do an Ironman. And that it's totally not the case. So for myself, you know, like you said, I'm, I'm a pretty busy working professional. And because of that, I've had to scale back. I no longer do Ironman distance races. I like doing the shorter di- races. And, you know, the draft legal races have been a lot of fun for me. So that's more palatable for me given my schedule. And that's something that, you know, when you're talking to an athlete that wants to do the sport, just setting up those realistic expectations of what time they're able to commit to the training. Yeah. And I always add into that getting buy-in from, you know, spouse, uh, family, significant other, because that inevitably can undermine the best laid plans. If you don't have the understanding of uh, your uh, significant other right at the start, you're in big trouble. Absolutely. uh, it it causes uh, all kinds of stresses uh, when they don't have the same understanding of what's involved as you do. Absolutely. Um, but, but those are all great points that you made. And I think, uh, you know, I make them too when I have conversations with athletes. And uh, uh, it's how I think uh, a lot of busy professionals can still manage to do this sport and manage to do quite well at it. It's by exactly as you said, uh, making it a priority, uh, deciding what distance is uh, doable with the hours that they have. And then, you know, uh, like I said, getting the buy in of uh, the supporting crew around them, because it really is, despite the fact that you're the one out there on the course, it's a team sport when it comes to training. Absolutely. Yeah. For for my long distance athletes, especially folks that want to do their Ironman and especially if they want to do their first Ironman, I make it mandatory that I actually meet with their family members in addition to the athlete themselves. Because so many times people are like, oh, yeah, my husband's totally behind this. But then when you actually talk to them in person, they're, they're kind of a deer in headlights and they're, they're not sure what they've signed up for. And so I always make sure that the family is involved with the decision making process. Yeah, it's a great. Uh, I want, how many times has that resulted in a change in plans? Actually, none. I, I I actually had what's funny is I actually had one athlete that had been kind of teetering on doing an Ironman, and his wife is is a marathon runner. She's a Boston qualifier, so she's a very talented athlete herself. And she just looked at him and she's like, "Anybody can do half of anything." so she was egging him on it was really funny (laughs) that's good that's good we'll have to write that down somewhere (laughs) we we bring it up every so often it's it's pretty funny (laughs) yeah uh kim uh what is uh your involvement with 303 endurance and bill so I was brought on with 303 back in 2016 when Dana Willett was the editor in chief. And, you know, she just 
I don't know what it was that she and I connected and she thought, you know what, Ken would make a really awesome additional team member. And at the time, Bill, Bill was one of the contributing partners um, for 303. And so my relationship with Bill has kind of grown like a brother-sisterly type relationship since then. And when he took over 303, I've kind of been his pseudo right-hand person, especially when it comes to you know, WordPress and and MailChimp. (laughs) Bill's not exactly the most uh, technically savvy person, but he likes to be able to figure it out and he just needs a little nudge every now and then. Um, But yeah, like he, he has an uncanny talent for really seeing what your talents are, even if you don't see them. And he's really helped me out with, I guess, showing me like my, my photography skills were very amateur and I'm still developing them, but because of his encouragement, like I've invested in some really nice equipment. I've been able to take some really amazing photos. One actually that was used for the today show because one of my friends, I had taken a photo of her and she was featured on one of their, um, their senior moments segments. And, uh, yeah, there's just, you know, I just never knew I had this creative side until I started dabbling in 303. And and it's been an amazing ride with with Bill and some of our other folks um, going to Kona, you know, interviewing uh, all sorts of athletes, meeting celebrities. Um, and then also one of these days, I'm, I'm hoping we'll, we'll get to maybe go check out the Tour de France, but that could be, that, that could be a, a ways out. But um yeah, 303 has just been it's an been an amazing ride to be part of their their team. Well, uh Cam, it sounds like you've uh managed to have success in pretty much everything you've tried and uh it's not that hard to understand how Bill would have uh, seen some area that maybe you hadn't quite thought of but uh, that you would manage to find success in anyways. Um I am uh, very happy to have had the chance to have met you although of course not under the kinds of circumstances <laughs> you would have liked but uh we can look forward to meeting again under better circumstances in the future once this whole covid thing is sorted somehow some way uh but for now thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today it was a really fascinating and uh entertaining conversation absolutely thanks for having me on and that's it for another episode of the tridoc podcast i hope that you enjoyed listening to it as much as i enjoyed bringing it to you You can find archives of all of the shows as well as a handy collections feature where I have grouped the shows by category at the-tridoc-podcast.captivate.fm. Do you have questions about any of the issues discussed on this episode? Or do you have a question that you'd like for me to consider answering on a future episode? Send it to to me by email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit tridoccoaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the Tridoc Podcast Facebook page, Tridoc Coaching on Instagram, and the Tridoc Coaching YouTube channel. I also hope that you'll take a moment to leave me a rating and a review wherever you download this podcast, because that's the best single way that I can get the message out and get more listeners to have a listen. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is Radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon. 
with another interview from someone in the world of triathlon and another medical question to answer. Until then, train hard, train healthy.